0: listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What's up team? Hopefully you're doing okay. Thank you very much for downloading this episode, for being an advocate for independent music, and caring about not only this particular podcast, but the guests I bring on. Because, uh, you know, it's really cool to be able to talk more in depth about your story, your experiences. And I know that I get feedback from people who I have on the show who are like, Thanks for this. And like, you know, there are people who have known me for 10, 15, 20 years and, uh, you know, don't know these things about me. So it's, it's a real, it's a special thing. So some some bits of business, but I am incredibly, incredibly excited to bring on the guest that I have this week. His name is Hanif Abdurraqib. And I'm saying that slowly in order to not, I think, butcher it, but Raqib Hanif, He is a poet. He is a podcast host. I got exposed to him via a podcast that he did this season with uh, KCRW called Lost Notes. And he uh, did an episode on uh, Darby Crash and John Lennon. And it's probably one of my favorite podcast episodes of all time, (laughs) just because it is, you know, it's clearly connected to the punk scene as far as Darby Crash and the germs and then uh, how his death you know, it was like a day or two before John Lennon died, and it, you know, it's just such a, it, mwah, chef's kiss, so, and Hanif is a uh, punk and hardcore kid, and I uh, understood that reading some other interviews and just noticing the work that he was putting out there, and he's also a music critic, he is a man about words, that's probably the best way to put it, but I had to have him on, and he came on, and it was great, and we talk about life in the Midwest and all that stuff, but... First of all, you can email the show, always email the show, 100 podcast at gmail.com. I love to get feedback from you, hear stories about whatever experience you have with the guests. Like, you know, that that sort of stuff is, is real special to me. And uh, yeah, and plus, we're all feeling alone. <laughs> you know, this is such a weirdly isolating time. And, uh, you know, if you need anything, I will do my best to be here for you in whatever capacity that may mean. Obviously, I'm not a therapist or anything professional from that perspective. But, you know, still, we can be together for each other as humans as much as we can. So, there's that. You can also just review the show in uh, Apple Podcasts most specifically. Just toss some stars in there. Write a few sentences if you do feel so compelled. That just helps the show in ways that, uh, you know, it just makes it legitimate to other people. Because, you know, they read reviews, and that's a thing. I... Last week, I released the best of twenty twenty uh podcasts, and uh, I recorded that before the events of you know our nation's capital being stormed by domestic terrorists and it was just a it like I'm still trying to understand that. it's just awful. it is so awful, and I'm really, really, really thankful that the election panned out how it did and uh, i'm just i'm you know i'm I'm looking forward to hopefully having a sense of normalcy and, you know, a steady hand at the wheel. It's not like the Biden presidency is going to be, you know, everything that I ever wanted. But I feel very, very thankful that we won't be experiencing the existential horror that uh, happens, like basically every time you wake up and look at the, you know, the news. It's uh, Hopefully it's going to be more steady from that perspective. So... I just felt weird if i didn't mention anything about that at all because uh you know that profoundly affected all of us and um yeah let's just let, let's talk to Neef. i loved this chat he was uh such a good dude and uh you know was willing to entertain a lot of uh random questions that i'm sure he hasn't been asked before so here's Neef, and of course at the end of the episode i will always tell you what's happening next week hey, I'll admit, I definitely had a general awareness of you, you know, as far as your writing and poetry was concerned, but it wasn't until the uh, Lost Notes podcast that really kind of congealed in my head, like, oh, like, you know, this dude obviously likes music, I know that, but like, you know, has a connection to the, uh, you know, punk and hardcore and DIY scene, and um, I and trust me, this isn't a disparaging term, but like, you know, I I definitely would view you as like a secret punk (laughs) where it's like most people have an outside perception of what, uh, people like should be, um, not even just from a look perspective, but just kind of like, Oh yeah, you know, here's this uh, author and, you know, poet. And yes, of course he's written about fallout boy, but, um, you know, like maybe it doesn't go deeper than that. Um, you know, do, does that kind of resonate with you where people like obviously assume one thing and then, uh, you know, you're kind of like, well, I have these other, you know, I've, I've been to a bunch of sweaty rooms with 100 people before. So, um, you know, that's that's who I am.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, I think some of that, too, is um, at least in my case is based off. You know, I think it is racialized in some ways. It, that's just the way it was for me going, going up on the scene I came up on. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, all music fandom is somewhat rooted in um, immense devotion and a performance of that devotion that is singular. And, um, you know, I'm someone who's devoted to a lot of different types of music. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different types of music that I consider um, impactful to me and in, in music that has not only enhanced but sometimes saved my life. And I, I think I owe it to all of those types of music to, um, open myself up to not only nostalgic excitement, but the excitement for, um, you know, a future that I, where I still love those songs. And so I I do think that, you know, my devotion to punk is very real, my devotion to punk and hardcore, but, um, you know, it's just as real as my devotion to, um, 80s pop music. It's just as real as my devotion to Philadelphia soul and Memphis soul. Um, And so, you know, I do think sometimes that people are expecting, um, you know, I think we're a culture that operates in um, a reliance on binaries uh, largely to our detriment. And so I I think people kind of um, imagine that you got to be this one thing or you're not anything. Right. Yeah. It's definitely this or that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, I completely agree with you in regards to, you know, the devotion to, um, you know, music at large and not being, you know, just kind of pigeonholing yourself. Uh, you know, as far as your own musical tastes go, uh, but I do think that there is something really, um, you know, inherent, like what, I look at myself as an example. It's like, you know, I'm 40 years old, I'm a grown ass adult, but it's like, you know, I'm still straight edge and vegan and a hardcore kid. Like you still call yourself a hardcore kid. and yeah. it's. I think there is something that is so inherent about the way that uh you know people view themselves through that lens like even though as they you know get older and clearly as you pointed out your musical tastes expand well beyond just you know listening to yelling and screaming or whatever um You know, I I guess what, you know, in your observation, why do people, um, I I guess, kind of attach themselves to that? And, you know, it it becomes a real foundational part of them in ways that, you know, other things, um, you know, might be, like you said, devoted to, but maybe not have as much of a, I guess, identity wrapped up into it.
1: Um, I think for me, I can only speak for me, and I I would say that I I think um, it's because of when I found punk and hardcore, I think I was shifting... Um I was going through an identity shift in a way, um mm-hmm. and I was phasing out of this feeling like I was an immense outsider. I think when we're young, sometimes we feel like we're a bit more outsider than we actually are. you know what I mean sure. uh you know when i was you know when I was in high school or, or middle school, it was so easy to convinced myself that I was quote unquote weird when really I probably wasn't all that weird. Um, you know, like on sports teams and I, you know, like had, I, I was not very weird. Um, but I, I think that I had convinced myself this to the point that, um, I had dreamed myself into an outsider. And then when I found punk and when I found hardcore, and this was after high school, when I found punk and hardcore, at least in a live sense, I knew about the music, but when I found like the scene, um, capital S scene, um, I had already kind of dreamed myself into this um, outsider figure. And to walk into these spaces was kind of to, at first to being kind of like a chamber of, of those dreams. Um, and then very quickly those dreams got demystified. Um, but I think through that demystification, I, I found kind of my, my people, some of my people at least. Sure. It
0: definitely, I, I agree with you, the uh, exposure to it and the age in which you come to, um, you know, this, this DIY space, because, you know, obviously it's not just limited to, you know, punk and hardcore, but clearly the idea of just, not asking permission and doing something. I think that at the core of it is what's so appealing because, you know, you have no control over your life at all because you have to go to school and your parents are telling you to do stuff. But then you're like, wait a minute, I can like do this and like put on a show. Like this is crazy.
1: Yeah. 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 And I think it's also just like, um, you know, that's kind of it too. And, you know, I when I, where I was coming up in the Midwest, um, there was just houses and space and, people who had instruments and it kind of, there was a point where it didn't entirely matter if you were quote unquote good or not. Um, as much as it mattered that you could be loud enough to mask the fact that you were maybe not good. And what mostly mattered is would your friends show up for you? You know, did you have a crew who would show up for you? Um, and so sometimes the music was almost secondary and kind of funneling into um a larger social circle where people could kind of be themselves in ways they, they didn't feel like they could be themselves always. Yeah. That's a, that's very
0: reflective of, um, <laughs> the, yeah. And when you say cruise, like obviously that means so many different things to so many different people, but like, yeah, just the idea of having this support system and being like, yes, these five people will show up to whatever it is that I do because we're all, you know, we got each other's back.
1: Yeah. And it's just like, um, you know, one of the albums I love this year, and it's kind of like a pop punky thing, it's the Black Star Kids album, Whatever Man. And what I like about it is that it kind of brings back the skit. There's all these skits kind of woven through the album. And one of the skits are these two people talking. Um, and one of them is like, you want to go to a Black Star Kids show tonight because it's free and you don't have anything better to do. And the other person is like, you know... I think they kind of suck. Like I used to like them, but they kind of suck. And then the other guy's like, yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, and then there's a silent pause. And then one of them is like, "But well, let's go to the show anyway. Cause, you know, it's and it's kind of, I mean, obviously that's that, that skit is the black star kids kind of poking fun at themselves, but also like it shows an acute awareness of like what it is to be on a scene. Right. Where, <laughs> countless times in my, in my youth, it was like, well, I'm not going to go to that show because it costs three bucks, but I'll go see this band. I don't really like, cause it's free. Um, <laughs> totally. to, you know, I'll save that three bucks to get cheap, like, food cart food after the gig. Um, and I, I think even those kind of decisions, um, those kind of organizing principles form these unique bonds among a crew. You know, the crew that's definitely not going to pass up a free show, even if they don't love the person playing.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think you speak to your experience too in the Midwest, where because it is this, you know, large suburban sprawl and spaces, it's like, you know, countless times when bands are on tour, it's not the, you know, especially when you're like, quote unquote, coming up, it's not the A markets that are, you know, the banger shows for you. It's the, you know, Columbus's and the places where people don't have all of these options. And they're like, oh yeah, there's a show. Like, of course you're going to go. It's a Friday. So like, yeah, like who's playing? It doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, like, There were, for me, and I think a lot of my pals around that time, there were kind of networks of travel. I mean, Chicago was a massive, Chicago in the surrounding suburbs, um, I should say, because, like, you know, there were shows in LaGrange and there were shows in, you know, like, not always in the heart of Chicago. Um, Chicago was a big thing, but so was Detroit and so was Pittsburgh, you know. And um, there were decisions that would sometimes have to be made based off of, not only where the shows were and not only who was playing but literally how much are you getting for the money and energy the money you're spending the energy you're exerting right in chicago and in, in chicago the chicago land areas um were always kind of the best bargain in a way because there were just so many bands particularly in the early mid 2000s There were so many bands and so many bands coming through. And so, yeah, you would have to drive six hours. And then in in my case, at least drive back that same night or like at that point early in the morning, um, but you would see like 10 bands, you know, or, you know, you would see and, and like good bands at that point, but you would see a lot of bands. Whereas sometimes, you know, if you would go down to Dayton or even go up to Detroit, um, still good shows, but there would be fewer bands because it's just how the population was. You know, Pittsburgh had fewer bands. Um, and so in a way, early mid two thousand, Chicago in the Chicago suburbs, um, there was kind of that explosion of, of punk and hardcore that, that fed into the eventual pop punk boom. Um, and kind of being around for that was really fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That was really, that was really cool. cool. Um, and like you said, kind of, you know, reflecting on your, you know, you, growing up in high school and everything like that, like you said, you, uh, you know, you identified yourself as an outsider, um, you know, and, and you, you strike me, um, you know, this is obviously just, a you know, playing armchair psychologist on the outside here, but like you strike me as a person who, um, is, uh, you know, friendly, but not like the center of attention where you're coming into the room and being like, oh, okay, here, here, here we go. Like <laughs> this is, this, this guy's going to suck all the air out of the room. Um, was that kind of reflective of your uh, high school experience as you were, you know, I guess kind of getting your identity.
1: I think so. I mean, I, you know, I was, um, I listened to music. I mean, I came up in an era in a time when I listened to music largely in private. Some of this is because I just, I was really fortunate to have older siblings who loved music and I had parents who loved music. Um, but with that, meant is that my listening experiences were often at the mercy of other people happily i mean you know my the people around me had great taste and and tastes that informed my own but there's something about that um i think especially as i grew into high school and wanted to start defining my tastes for myself um there was something about that that led me to crave um an engagement with music on my own terms, which meant a lot, of, especially before I got had my own car. Um, it meant a lot of listening on headphones and listening privately and kind of coming to terms. So, you know, I, I think the most formative part of my taste building, um, I, I got you know my my siblings uh, specifically kind of cracked the door open, and and you know, I think too, I came I came of age in the nineties when I think at least in my little orbit. Um, I, g- I grew up in a largely black neighborhood and went to schools that were mostly black, but, um, a lot of my homies had o- older siblings. And I think a lot of that generation was really kind of following these sonic trends where it's what I'm saying is my brother's, my brother and sister were into hip hop short, but they're also in the metal and the grunge. And I mean, college radio was so big in the nineties. Um, and sort of have siblings who were in college at the time of the college radio, like that, that maybe second or third wave of college radio boom happened, um, you know, that meant they were coming back home with stuff that I had not heard before and, and fell in love with. And so there was that, but, but defining my own taste, I, you know, during my high school years, I felt like I was in headphones almost all the time. Um, and. Or, or like pushing my headphones onto someone else, you know, so they could hear what I was hearing and they would push their headphones on me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and there's something I kind of miss. Um, I, I do think I'm a very explorative music listener now, but there's something I miss about the kind of exploration that comes with an exchange where I'm wearing headphones on the school bus and the person across the aisle from me is wearing headphones and we switch to see what we're listening to, that kind of thing, you know. Um, but. I always think that, I mean, I got a car before my senior year of high school, and when you are someone who is like the youngest in a family, maybe, um, and all of your car experiences revolve around being in other people's cars, listening to the music they pick, and and that's like a sacred thing, right? You cannot, in someone else's car, at least in my ecosystem growing up, I could not dictate what was listened to. If I like the song, for example, that my siblings were playing in their car, I couldn't be like, oh, can we listen to that one more time? Can we play that again? Um, you know. But when I got my own car, I think there's something that opens up in, in the experience of music listening because in some ways, at least for me in high school, you're no longer just listening for yourself. You're kind of listening um to permeate the environment with your soundscapes. Right. So I turned up the volume when I pulled into the school parking lot, or I turn up the volume when I was like driving down my, my street. Um, and, and there was something about that soundtracking the city as I moved through it, that, um, defined me as a listener. Sure.
0: The, uh, and so like you said, your, your older siblings were, you know, being able to you know open the door for all of these different genres of music and stuff like that. Um, you know, as you kind of started to, you know, really uh, dive deeper into, you know, the "quote unquote" scene as you as you were referring it to, um, and start to, you know, have these experiences that maybe you know your peers and or your parents were just like, well, you know, he's into music and that's cool, but like, um, what's uh what, what is this you're bringing home? Like, I don't understand that. Or was there any uh, friction there from that perspective?
1: No, I mean, I wasn't really around my house that much when I was kind of, uh, most immersed in the, in the scene. I mean, I was, again, it was like after high school and I just wasn't around a lot. Um, and so I very much was in my own kind of insulated world. Um, but also, you know, like I, I don't know, none of this felt, um, it didn't feel odd to me. And I don't know if it felt odd to anyone who was around me, um, not family, but just like friends who I'd I'd grown up with. Because again, we were all kind of happily really exploring different sounds pretty, you know, pretty eagerly. And and um, you know, my my roots have kind of always been in like hip hop was the first music that I knew and fell in love with. But pretty quickly, I think I was offered you know, doorways into other songs and other types of music. And so I don't think it was surprising to anyone around me. Um, I do think that there was, I mean, in in, in retrospect, um, you know, there are parts of it that felt in some ways secretive. Like I would go to shows with folks and not really tell some groups of my friends, not because I was hiding it from them, but just because it felt, again, like I was entering a different world when i was kind of in the scene i was in and also like it it is maybe sometimes hard to explain like i'm gonna drive six hours to see something that lasts two hours and then i'm gonna drive six hours again right yeah most people are like what what
0: are you talking about that doesn't make any sense
1: yeah but i mean yeah in the moment there was not really um I did not have a lot of responsibilities and I wasn't a very responsible person, you know, uh, I mean, that, that has to be stressed is that I was not, um, you know, living my best and most honorable life at all. in, the, in <laughs> And so, you know, not only did I not have a lot of responsibilities, but I also was the ones I did have, not just like, I'm not just talking work, but my responsibilities to like being a good person to the people I cared about, um, I was dismissive of those as well. And so, um, you know, I had, in some ways, I kind of carved out uh, this time through other modes of neglect.
0: Band merch. It's important, okay? That's how bands survive on the road. That's how bands survive when they are at home, which is what we all are right now. And rockabilia.com is the place where you can support your favorite bands. You can support independent business. You can support this very podcast by using this code, PC100Words. And that is not just out of the goodness of your heart, that is a 15% off order code, PC100Words. Now what is Rockabilia? You can probably figure it out, but they are an amazing company from the Midwest, ships you all of your band merch on time, great customer service, all officially licensed. You are not getting some horrific bootleg ripoff with terrible designs and ink that washes out. Nah, this is not what they do. Rockabilia is very proud of their products and proud of their alignment with all of these rad bands. and plus, they have over half a million items that you can possibly look at on the internets. And uh, let me tell you, I have ordered from Rockabilia many, many times, and it is the place that I often go to when I am looking for uh, something for myself, something for friends or family, whatever the case may be. But use this code because it gets you 15% off your order. PC 100 words. Don't forget it. Use it. Love it. Bookmark it. Visit it often. Thank you for your continued support, Rockabelia. Rockabelia.com. Did you ever have the idea that you wanted to like, you know, play in a band? I mean, because clearly that, you know, comes apart in uh, most people's brains once they start to witness the, uh, you know, the immediacy and the visceralness of, uh, you know, going to these small shows and stuff like that. Did you ever want to play in a band? Yeah, but I wasn't very
1: talented. Um, And so, you know, (laughs) uh, I, I, even if I were to imagine myself as a writer, um, I never was a really good writer of lyrics um and so I could not you know there were some folks on on the scene whose lyrical ability kind of carried them um into being in a band, and then it was kind of like, well, you know we'll hide you on this instrument or you'll be like the the dirty vocalist or something that you can do that does not um you know, hinder the the propulsion of the band's sound. Uh, But we need your lyrics. And I was never that good of a lyricist. And so that dream kind of went out the window kind of pretty quickly. Um, And I just don't think I would have ever been immensely comfortable on stage is the other thing. Um, You know, I, I, there are, this spans all genres of music, but there are people on stage who, um, not only look cool on stage, but know what to do when they are not the center of attention on stage. You know, um, I was just watching this, this uh, one of my favorite albums of the year is may our chambers before the Emma Ruth Rundle and, and thou album. Oh yeah. Uh, that album's so good. It's just yes. so good. And I was watching this, um, this video because it was one of those things where um, it was one of those things where I was like, I'm never I'm not going to see them live to play this album because there's nothing live happening um and but I wanted to see them perform something and I cuz I love watching uh that and I you know they're just great and what I'm mostly getting at is is Emma is one of those people who um on stage she's just so good at like when she is active She's very good, but when she's inactive, she's even better. She, like, knows what to do with herself on stage. And, I mean, across musical spectrums, there are people who are great at that. But that she comes to mind because I was just watching this performance. And I think I would fail on that part. I would fail on knowing what to do in moments of inactivity. Um,
0: (laughs) Right. No, I, I appreciate the articulation because I, I think that uh, I mean most people like don't have that conscious thought at all. Like being, you know, like you don't think you're going to be bad at something. Like you just do it, you know. Yeah. I, and so the fact that you had the wherewithal, or you know, you you maybe were inside your head so much, you were like, oh, dude, I, I won't be able to like blend in at all if I <laughs> if I do this.
1: No, I, and you have to like, um, I think there's some level of trust that there's where there's like a chain of engagement or your engagement is impacting other people's engagement. I mean, another thing I watched recently was um, Springsteen's Hammersmith Odeon concert uh, from seven, you know, like 75. And the E Street band at that point was just kind of young and they were, they still sounded good. They're, they were tight and all that, but they were also kind of just like cartoonish in a way. They were, all wearing these suits and hats and it just like kind of silly, but all of them knew how to engage with each other in moments of inactivity. And that's the thing too, um, where it's like, you know, if if one of them was just playing guitar and, and standing very still, someone would maybe run over to that person and nudge them or, or mess around with them a little bit to get them kind of moving. Um, and, and that is also something I would not think about doing on stage ever. So, you know, being in a band, yeah. this is not going to be the move.
0: <laughs> sure, sure, no, understood. well, then, how do you feel um do you feel i guess comfortable when you do you know your readings and you know what could ostensibly be compared to as a live performance from a you know author perspective? Uh, do you feel comfortable in that?
1: No, I mean, well, I do them you know, but, <laughs> but i at this point though I, yeah, at this point, I've just done so many, and I know the movements of the things I'm reading, and I know. Um, you know also I don't need to I, I rarely need to play off of anyone else right Um essentially I'm kind of just a solo act who in between pieces that I read has to be at least somewhat engaging or at least has to attempt some level of charm which I don't have because I'm not very charming um, and that feels easier to me if I'm the only person on a stage and people are expecting a very specific thing that I know I can deliver. Um, And there's not much, you know, the margin for error is a little different. There's not much that can go immensely wrong during a reading. Uh, And so, yeah, am I comfortable with it? No, but I've gotten very much used to it.
0: Right. Yeah. It it becomes, uh, this is not diminishing the experience of it, but but it becomes rote because you, like you said, you know the variance in like good and bad readings. You're like, okay, yeah, it's it's within this pocket as opposed to, oh, we just like, you know, completely fall apart and can't finish our song or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: and so the I, I'm curious, like, like you said, you know, once you kind of started to really become aware of the quote unquote scene, as it were, um, what, what were the bands that you were kind of like gravitating to uh, the the most that was like you know really resonant with you? Like I know, you know, I mean, I, I know you love the Wonder Years, like that's a you know a, a, from what I can tell, a big band for you. What were some of the other bands kind of you know in that ecosystem? Uh, doesn't even have to be sonically uh, that were really inspiring as you started to see, like, oh wow, this is really special here.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, the Wonder Years came later. Um, okay, very big band, but they, they came later because I mean, they, they started later. Um, but I think all the time about the Illinois bands or bands that played a lot in Illinois. I mean, like, obviously, I've written about the early days of Fallout Boy, but you know, from that was like Killing Tree and Arm Race Trader was uh, Race Huge. Trader was fascinating yeah. for me because it, I mean, uh, logic, even back then, I knew that Race Trader was not exactly performing their brand of their brand of performance was not supposed to antagonize me right as like someone who was often one of the few black people in the room Um, they were not aiming to kind of um you know get under my skin and so that allowed for I feel like not enough people talk about race traders, like actually a good band, or, like a very good band. Um,
0: totally. They're just like, oh, they were, they were firebrands and then no one says anything about the music. Yeah.
1: They, but they were a good. And I think that maybe, um, because it's like, all right, y'all are trying to antagonize the white people in the room and I get it. You know what I mean? But, but that allowed me to kind of like sit back and just listen to the music. And you're know, like, what? You know, like Andy, Andy's a great drummer. Just like throughout the through line through, um, his any band that he's contributed to just great drumming but race trader also you know they were just like the songs were great um and so i I thought race trader was uh (laughs) fascinating in a way that um i don't know like plan of attack was cool um I saw plan of attack a bunch for some reason. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's, that's all Dude, I, I could definitely tell you, I have not thought about plan of attack <laughs> until you just mentioned it. It was like, Oh wow. That just brought me back. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I, Cause I feel like there was a stretch where they just played everywhere all the time. Um, yeah. Like, I think that's another thing too, is because like I was, I was kind of going to shows in the same kind of bubble. Um, you would just see the same kind of bands. Um, but I remember plan of attack, a death for every sin was also kind of big, yeah. uh, you know, the band and they weren't like super hardcore punk, but a band I thought about um, that played these, these shows early on, you know, was pretty girls make graves. Um, I thought about them a few weeks ago because they were kind of, again, they weren't like, they would play on these bills with, with heavier bands, but they weren't necessarily heavily, heavy themselves. And I think, they just kind of rolled in the circle of, of this, and they were they were from so far away. You know, they're from like the Pacific Northwest. Um, and so anytime they came to the Midwest, that's those are just the bills that we could get on, you know. Um, but seeing pretty girls make graves for the first couple times was just so stunning to me. Um yeah. You remember that's the band awesome. you remember the band's Seventh Grade Underdog? No. Educate me. Um, well, I don't remember much about. I don't remember if they were sure or not, Um, but I remember their shows being cool, but I think I maybe only saw them once. I mean, they broke up, they broke up after like two years, maybe. Okay. And so I I think um, if you saw them, you kind of just like, um, you caught them on the ascent and the ascent wasn't very high. Uh, it was like a medium level ascent and then a very right. quick dissolution, but they were so exciting to watch and they were often at the bottom they were like a mid bottom of the bill band, and okay. so you know they would often play early and they were, I remember being them being one of those bands where it 's like if they were on the bill, I would make a concerted effort to get to the spot to see you know they would always play first or second, so they would play to like twenty people, but I was always one of the twenty people um because they played the shows with a confidence and excitement like they were playing to 200 people. And and back then, I feel like that was always hard to get those early bands to do that. Because, you know, like on these shows with more than like five or six bands, you know, the, the first two bands, those are the bands people go outside and smoke during, you know. Uh, yeah. but, but Seventh Grade Underdog was, was a band that played always like they were playing to sold out arenas. Right. Right.
0: No, that's cool. I appreciate you mentioning that. Cause yeah, every other band I was like, oh yeah, I'm on board with. And I'm like, oh no, I, I have not heard of that band. So, <laughs> um, the, I'm going to guess the, I, for the life path that you were on in regards to like, you know, career and ambitions from that perspective was not, um, you know, kind of where you are now. Um, or maybe it was, no. did you have, okay. <laughs> did, did you have an idea of like, you know, what you wanted to quote unquote be when you grew up?
1: no i mean i did some writing for zines because i think on the you know the zine format was appealing to me because it was kind of like reporting um i didn't think about it like that then the thing about zines too is depending on the scene you're on um everyone loves a zine but no one really wants to contribute to it you know um you know no one wants to like write for it or whatever um uh, right but i i liked it i liked that this idea that I was reporting from the front lines of a scene I cared about. Um, But other than that, you know, I I didn't, um, I didn't think of myself as a writer, even as I was, even as I was writing. Um, And because I wasn't writing a lot and like no one was reading what I was writing. I mostly thought of it as an act of service. Um, again, like reporting on, from uh, reporting on the happenings of, of, of a place I loved and of people I, I, I love being around. Um, but I mean, much like, again, I was, I was pretty disaffected, like floating from one mess to another. Um, and you know, not until I would even say like three to five years ago, maybe, um, and this is like I'm a grown, grown adult now, um, right. but still, you know, like I, I feel like um, in some ways I was still living out this idea of a of a carefree youth, even as I aged beyond carefree youthfulness. Right, right.
0: Well, I I really am glad you articulated that the documentation of it, because I think that you know when people are really transfixed by you know the whole DIY scene and aspect of it, you just try to figure out a way for you to be involved, whether that is playing in a band, whether that is taking pictures, whether it is writing a zine, whatever it is. Like You feel this innate uh, idea that you want to be creative towards it. And I think that's a really important part of what you, know, you are doing not only in your music journalism where you're trying to play stuff in context and then through your own personal lens, but I, I think that... A lot of that is really stemmed out of, you know, just that idea that like, yeah, I want to report on this, you know, local scene or whatever, not saying that was exactly what you did, but you know, that it it, it comes from that sort of, that general idea.
1: Yeah. And I think, I mean, like, you know, some of really what my dream was, was being a photographer. I say this with no actual photographic, with a, I have no ability to be a photographer. I have no skill taking pictures, but um, you know, some of my favorite work to this day, I mean, in my home, I have, you know, work from from scene photographers and hard people who photograph hardcore shows. And um, I just think that work is when done well, sometimes even when not done that well, it's just so stunning because you're capturing people. Um, I think in this genre more than any other genre, you're capturing people in the throes of sometimes um, emotional, but sometimes very physical excitement and ecstasy where it's like people are airborne or people are being you know in mid you know like in grasping for the stage that kind of thing um and I don't have again like I can't take pictures for shit and so like I don't really you know I'm not (laughs) I'm not the person who's going to be a photographer but that's what I wanted I think because I I, I'm someone who's always observed a show I mean truly what's happening on the stage I believe is innately connected to what's happening in on the faces, within the bodies uh, of the people consuming the show in real time. And I'm a real observer of that. There's something interesting to me about watching many different people react to music at one time, you know? Um, and so for almost my whole life, the way I've taken in shows is as a watcher and getting to see people really in the throes of excitement Um, in wanting to capture that, wanting to find like a stillness to capture that with.
0: Yeah, no, it's beautiful. It's uh, it's poetic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I I think it 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 really does. You know, and I, I try not to, like, wax romantic too much about the idea of, you know, if a person hasn't experienced, you know, what you and I have in, in small sweaty rooms, that they can't have the same visceral experience at, like, you know, a pop concert. Because you can. It, oh, it's yeah. just obviously a completely different context. Um, but there is, the, the, especially the, uh, you know, like I said, the, the DIY thing is what really resonates with me the most that it's like, and I, I think this is very reflective of, uh, you know, the, the piece that you did on in pitchfork about, you know, being black in a mostly white scene. And it really resonated with me personally, because I think it, you know, it, it can really make people obviously reflect on their own personal experience with their own, you know, DIY scene, whatever that may mean. But the, the idea that, really permeated, like I said, is the DIY nature of it. But then taking those ideas that you learn in those small, sweaty rooms, because, <clears throat> you know, I mean, if some of the bands that you mentioned, like, you know, Killing Tree and Armangelus and all that, like they were fiercely political. I mean, Race Trader is a prime example. Yep. But taking those ideas and applying them to the outside world, I think that's what really kind of separates the two, you know, musical genres as it as it were.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think too, um what appealed to me even more than the political um, you know, which isn't to say that I wasn't political as a young person, but I think um, like every, like my politics have evolved to a point where like at this point, you know, it's, I look back and I think, well, was I, you know, how political was I actually? Um, but there was also the thing with DIY is for me or was this understanding that, and I didn't have, again, I didn't have aspirations of being on stage, but to see people on stage who I would also like see in houses at my friends' houses, who I'd also just see you know like there's no uh there's no real hierarchy there's in an ideal scene it, particularly in, in the in the infant stages of a DIY scene, there should not be a real hierarchy, and so you know, band plays a show, gets off stage. you know what I loved about these shows with massive bills is that like band to play a show or play a set, get off stage, kind of put their stuff down and then just kind of be, you know, guys yeah, in the yeah,
0: just hang out. Yeah, <laughs> you know
1: what I mean? Um, there's no like backstage, there's no separation between, they are the audience. They are both audience and participants. Um, and that to me felt, always felt um, really cool.
0: Right, no barriers.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: no, I, I like that. Cause I do think that, I, I'm sure you experienced this, in your line of work and the way that people, um, you know, respect your art. And obviously that's flattering, but then I'm sure as the same thing that happens with bands where there's this idea of, you know, putting a person or, uh, you know, a band up on a pedestal and being like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, they're untouchable. But then, you know, it's just like, no, they're just dumb dumbs that picked up a guitar. Like they're the same person as me or whatever. It's like, I've just been able to you know figure, like, figure this out. Do you, um, you know, do people come at you like that being like, Oh my gosh, like and Eve, like the, you know, he's a, he's a very intelligent person and he's a, he's a poet. Like, I, I don't know, man, I don't know if I can have interactions with them or is it pretty, um, I guess diffused because of, you know, you are who you are.
1: I try to diffuse it in part, you know, I just, again, like attempting to demystify all of this because I, and I think it's by virtue of how I came up and the scenes I came up, came up on. And also I think in some ways, just because of how I think about myself, um, as someone who is eternally curious and also just someone who's very eager to interact with people. Um, I got into writing about music because I felt, I knew I was not alone in feeling the way I felt in the way that music made me feel. Right. I knew I wasn't alone in that, but I didn't always have avenues to discuss that. Or I didn't always have people who were eager to hear about that, which, you know, through no, Indictment of on them like I sometimes I want to hear myself ramble about the the way I ramble about music, um, but I I think I got into writing about music just seeking connection and knowing that there would be someone who would kind of reach back towards me and I obviously not on the scale that it's at now I did not expect for my life and quote unquote career to kind of be what it is now but I, I think it really um, I hope that I have and will continue to do a good job of demystifying the bullshit around kind of like this hierarchy between a person's creations or a person who creates things and then the people who consume it. Because I, um, you know, I, I enjoy talking to people about music and I don't really care. You know, I, if you are a fellow writer or if you're just a person who listens to songs while you clean your house in, or if you're a person who, has on headphones while you're at a day job you don't love. Like I, I'm interested. I'm invested in these conversations because all of them, for me, I'm still the seeker. I'm still someone who is seeking music. And I can't seek music alone because there's so much of it all the time. There's so much music all of the time. And I think one large detriment if I were to kind of sit in my isolation and separate myself from people who love music is that I just I miss out on music I mean let alone the conversations that excite me and the curiosities that get enlivened through these conversations I would just plainly miss out on music because I don't know where every I don't know where all the music is (laughs) you know like I, I do have my routes where I find new music and all that um but I I rely on hearing from people and talking to people about music and also talking to people about music makes me feel personally less alone and less isolated and less like I am experiencing um, the world on my own. And I know that I can write about something and say, this made me feel this way. And someone will be like, yo, that made me feel that way too. And, and I, in that, that is propulsive for me. Um, You know, and so I, I hope that I continue to do a good job of kind of demystifying this whole thing of, um, the the artist and this this hierarchy of the artist and the people because i think that my art is inextricably linked to the people and always has been and i came up on a scene where that was the case and um and I that's the through
0: line for you yeah yeah that's it yeah no i totally get that um two last things i want to hit on was the um Do do you compare and contrast uh, of the, you know, the work of a writer? I mean, because now, you know, you've you've published, uh, you know, a variety of different pieces, not only from a sort of freelance perspective, but then, you know, publishing books and, you know, collections of your uh, writings and poetry and stuff like that. Um, and then kind of the idea of, you know, what a band does when they put out their first LP, you know, the joke that you have your entire life to write your first record, but then you've got 18 months to write your second record, you know,
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> like, so do, does that, uh, I guess, do you kind of like reflect and compare and contrast that it's like, oh yeah, like that's kind of similar or it's like, well, yeah, it's a little similar, but it's, you know, very different in these other, uh, other ways.
1: I think it's, you know, I, I feel like, um, I have been fortunate in part because I write across two different genres. And so, um, and I think one of them specifically poetry um, almost demands a type of growth. You know, like the poets I love most have never written the same book twice. Um, Whereas sometimes I think when it comes to albums, it can be detrimental if you don't make something at least similar to your, your last effort, or if you depart too far, um, it can be a bit detrimental. Not to me. I appreciate experimentation, but I, um, but I think in poems, you know, it's, you know, my second book of poems was not at all like my first book of poems. And um, for me, I came to poems late. I came, you know, I started writing poems like 2011, 2012, um, which was late for a lot of my peers. And so, I, I was also operating on a learning curve as I was immersing myself in the work, um, which is another reason I think why the leap between my first book of poems and the second book of poems looks the way it does. Because I'm still, you know, it's like I'm hitting on things that, um, as I'm as I'm immersed in them, and so I, and, and I, you know, with my nonfiction books, I'm kind of tackling different ideas through the throughout them, and so there's a lot more room and freedom for me to both experiment and to attack new ideas um, and to not make the same book twice. Uh, and I think what people sometimes want with a band is not for them to make the same album twice, but they, they do want them to stay familiar. You know, um, there are ways that I think the rigidity of, and I say this with all love for the scenes I've been on, but there was a rigidity in there that I think um, did not serve well, and did not hold well during the mid 2000s specifically, some of this is um the fault quote I, I say fault and I'm doing air quotes that no one can see, but they're large air quotes uh, sure the fault of you know like right. bands and record labels kind of swooping in and swooping up all those bands at once in a way or over the course of a, a, a stretch of time um because it was easy to say, well like all these bands sold out um but I don't know when I go back and listen to those records. I don't know that a lot of those bands change their sound, you know? Um, but they, they changed them enough maybe to get people less than enthusiastic about them, you know? And I, um, and so I think all the time about what we're actually asking out of music makers, um, from album to album and, if we can be thankful, I, I found myself now as I've aged as a music fan, um, rooting myself in gratitude, even if I'm not, you know, like, I think about the last Slater Kinney record and I love, I mean, I love Slater Kinney. Slater Kinney is one of my five or 10 favorite bands of all time. Um, I didn't love the last Slater Kinney record, right? But uh, I thought it was fine, but I didn't love it. And I was thinking about it and I was stopping myself from, I had to actively stop myself from these feelings of entitlement where I was like, this album, you know, this album isn't for me and I'm so disappointed and like, why'd they have to do this? That kind of thing. When um, really what they were attempting on that album was a, a growth in a different type of direction. And even though that direction doesn't serve me, I have to kind of, be thankful for the fact that for years, I mean, actual years, slater Kenny made albums that I think are just stunning. And there comes a point where anything else I receive is a bonus that I'm going to be thankful for, but I have to have gratitude for what I've already received. Anything, listen, anything slater Kenny made after The Woods that I love it's just like a bonus on top of that incredible run of albums that I, that has sustained me and will sustain me for years and years and years.
0: Yeah, totally. It's great. It's gravy. It's like when you're talking about, um, you know, even if you're looking at a band that has, you know, significantly less output, you can still be like, Hey, even though this band put out two records, their second one wasn't that good, but their first one, like, let's talk about that for days. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, like be, it's a very good point. You need to be thankful for what has existed rather than like what has become, because, you know, at the end of the day, like no one owes you anything, <laughs> especially the bands, the artists.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Um and this, forgive me, this is like a, like the most basic question, but the, uh, you know, the publishing world, uh, that's, to me, that's always been really uh, opaque in regards to, you know, does it function the same way as like, you know, the music industry or the entertainment industry where, uh, you know, from a business perspective um, in regards to like, hey, we'll give you, you know, an advance and then you go away and you do the thing and then you come back and then whatever money is recouped and like, you know, that whole process. Um, you know, I, I, I don't need like a you know an explainer from that but but the idea of like business and art and commerce like you know because I mean bands go through the same thing once they start to be like hey we just made a thousand dollars off our merch like you know like not only can we go to Denny's after the show but like what does that mean for us so how have you kind of approached you know the business side of things as it started to impact you know how you write and you know how well not how you write but like the the the, your output into the world like how how have you kind of uh, I guess navigated that world
1: um, I don't ever think about the business aspect because I think that that would, I mean, yes, it does function similarly to music, which I didn't know until, which I, you know, didn't fully grasp, I think, until maybe like, I don't know, last year. And that was, you know, my like fourth book, um, but it does function similarly to music in terms of that um that exchange of like here's an advance, here's the thing you have to earn out. If you earn this out, there's a better chance that you will get a higher advance next time. These kind of things. Um but I can't think about I just can't. I, you know, it would be um it would put me in, in a position where I would kind of be frozen um and I think making decisions that don't serve the work. Granted, um you know I also think that I am now like four books in and um, and I've been fortunate to have those books be well received. And so there's a comfort that comes with that, that, you know, it's a privilege to not be able to or not to not need to think about the business in the same way. Um, But I also think, you know, I would, I would be too anxious. I spending any time on that side of things would make me too anxious. Um, And I think would really be kind of devastating to my writing process and my thinking process. And, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, my core organizing principle is that if I, if I do the work and not just the work of writing, but also the work of being a person who is attempting to, um, get better and be better for not just myself, but for all the people around me, then things will, things will work out.
0: Right. <laughs> well, I, I think that's important to recognize in yourself because I think, I mean, you've probably seen this with many of your friends and peers, especially in the, you know, the the band world where, you know, most of the times it's like, oh yeah, the singer's like the business person. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. they're like, I don't want to be that person. I don't like, like, I don't like that or I'm not good at it, you know, but then it's just like by default, it kind of happens. And then, you know, you don't have the ability to like maybe extract yourself until you get a manager or something like that, Then it's just, you know, it's really, really difficult.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, you know, especially Tori, I, I, because I have friends who, who kind of do this thing, um, and, and do it well and do it often. um, you know, like seeing on tour where it's like, all right, I, I got to be the front person and the merch person and the, you know, like, and I have to, to, to like, do be the accountant. Um, it, it, I have, it's gained, I've gained a real appreciation for, and you don't see that, you know, you don't really see that. Um, we're talking about DIY stuff and, and coming up in a scene. You don't ever see that until you see it, you know, uh, until you're close enough to it to see you know the lead singer like counting out money backstage or at the restaurant to figure out who gets what that kind of thing um but it 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 it, it's um in some ways that part of it though i know it is not ideal for those people doing all that labor um it reminds me that you know everyone comes from somewhere and and you don't lose that you don't lose those skills that you you had when you were coming up
0: yeah no absolutely that's really cool and I promise last thing where I found that in most interviews that uh, people come at you for, um, you know, is speaking about, uh, you know, either your music journalism or your poetry and books, rightfully so. Um, but so many people, uh, I find it interesting when they're like, H- how are you still a fan of music? You know, like how, how do you still like, you know, retain the passion? Like when it becomes, you know, uh, some source of like livelihood, you know? Um, because I mean, I think, this is total anecdotal, but I think, you know, a couple of years ago when Spotify published a study that people stopped seeking out new music, like, you know, at like 32 years old or something like that. Um, like I said, purely anecdotal, but, um, it, it does it, uh, I guess, does it make you like laugh when people are like, Oh yeah. Like, how do you still care about music? it's just like, because there's so much like, you know, you're like, where, where do I even begin? But, um, you know, is it interesting that people kind of approach you with that question?
1: Yeah. I mean, cause I, there are there are parts I, I don't know. Here's how I'll answer this. I don't. There's a band um, on Friday. Radiant Children um, put out their album, and I don't know if you know that band. It's do you know Issues Sky Accords band. Uh, yeah, yeah. His brother is in Radiant Children. Oh, got it. And there's it's a brilliant album, but there's a song called "I Need Love" at the end, and it's just a really patient jazzy kind of deep groove that is like a a really ballady thing and then the last 40 seconds it opens up and there's all this there's this rush of volume and this rush of instrumentation the song kind of is like a closed fist slowly opening finger by finger right uh and then at the end it's really just it's like a freeway that clears in this rush of sound And then the album ends and I would live inside of that 40 seconds. It's the best, one of the best 40 seconds I've heard on any album all year. And that album is stunning. Right. Um, Similarly, similarly, we were talking about um, ER, Emma Ruth, Rundle and Dow, like that, the Valley, how the Valley at the very end opens up and becomes a different song. I want to live inside of that. I can't, when I think about music, I think about moments. I think about these sonic moments that make me feel as though I'm experiencing a different world for the first time. And I don't want to trade that in. I don't want um, that to feel old ever. And I want to keep seeking out these songs and keeping out, keep seeking out these sounds and keep seeking out these excitements. And um, that's why I still love music. I I mean, I know that's a very plain reason, Uh, but I mean, I think that is the reason I still love music because I love music. (laughs) You know, like I, I'm still, I'm still, um, emotionally excited by what people can do with sound that I have not experienced yet. And I still yeah. think that there's so much more to experience.
0: And I, I love that the, the notion of like living inside of it. Cause like when you describe it like that, people automatically think of like, you know, 10 songs where it's just like, Oh yeah, like that part, like, I just want to like live in that part. And I I agree with you. And I think it's, you know, it's a bummer when people, uh, lose that thought or lose that, you know, in the midst of our crazy lives, it's just like, well, remember how you felt about that one song at that one part? Like there's still stuff out there. You just have to, you know, not work hard at it, but work just a little bit at it. You'll find some. Yeah. Thank you so much for hanging
1: out, dude. I really appreciate this. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you very much, Hanif, for coming on the show. I had to go through a formal press process to get him on the show, so uh, thank you very much for, you know, making that process easy and agreeing to do this. <laughs> so uh, yeah, next week is a great chat. A great chat with Brian Funk from the band Thou. I became obsessed with Vow. Thou, Thou, Thou What am I talking about? Thou. <laughs> this past year. I've always been aware of the band and enjoyed what they have done, but it wasn't until, frankly, their uh, Nirvana Covers compilation, because they've done a ton of Nirvana covers, where I just, it, it unlocked something in my brain with this band. And uh, I had to have Brian on the show. So we did it. We actually had to record the episode twice because, for whatever reason, <laughs> his side of the audio dropped out and uh, just did not save the recording. And that's, a, that's an unfortunate thing, but that's what we got next week. So until then, please be safe, everybody.